Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Faruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this um, Legends podcast coming to you from Tokyo and Zushi with the amazing Angela Ortiz, um, who has an absolutely fascinating story. I'm so delighted to introduce her. Hi, Ange. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's very, very, it must be the hottest day of the year so far today. Is it warm in Tokyo? Very, very warm. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just did one quick jaunt to the, the convenience store and back and... Yeah, and you're done. Yeah, I'm going to the beach later and I'm hoping it's going to have cooled down by two o'clock, but I'm not 100% hopeful. So here we are. It's August the 10th. We're in Japan. Whenever you're watching or listening to this, we're right in the middle of um, the COVID corona 2020 pandemic. So we've been working from home a lot. Um, so maybe there's probably people milling around in our backgrounds here because we're, we're at home quite a lot right now. And... Um, so let me get into it. So Angela Ortiz is an incredible woman, um, a great friend who I adore. And I just want to tell you a little bit about her. So she is a social impact entrepreneur. <laughs> and um, she was raised in Japan. She's one of 11 brothers and sisters, <laughs> which is pretty remarkable in itself. Um, she is currently the CSR director, manager, senior manager, CSR senior manager for um, Adidas Japan. She previously worked for H and M as their CSR manager. The first one, right? That's true. Yes, first That's one in the amazing. market. Um, following the 2011 earthquake here, the great eastern earthquake here in Japan, Angela set up a business called, uh, a social impact business called OGA for Aid, which then became Place to Grow, which then became the title of her book, which we will talk about later, um, which was published very recently. Um, she is a Spartan, um, a self-confessed nerd. <laughs> Um, she has her own program called Bootylicious, which is all about getting great buns. 
And um, today, Ange, I just invite you and I invite everybody out there who's listening or watching to just speak as you are. There's no, no need to dumb it down or bring it up. Just be yourself. <laughs> speak as you speak. I'll speak as I speak with my vaguely Liverpoolian accent. <laughs> <laughs> And let's just um, just get into it. Was there anything that I missed off your introduction there, Ange? Other than being an, also an incredible coffee lover. Oh, a co coffee lover. Well, campfire. Yeah, and campfire. just recently I spoke to my grandmother who lives in Texas and my aunt and my mom. They invited me into their uh, weekly chat found out that my grandmother also drinks two to three cups of coffee a day. So we were all like, oh, we're so similar. Isn't that nice? Um, do you keep so in touch nice. regularly with your grandma? No. So it's been a long time. And so it was really special. But yeah. I'm going to now have weekly dates to mm -hmm. with questions about where they were from and what are their earliest memories to find oh. out more about the characters of my ancestors. So I'm really <gasps> excited. Oh, wow. The, the impact the, the, you know, the women had on the next generation of women. Ah, yes. You mentioned this in a recent communication with me. So this is really interesting to me, Ange, and I just I actually want to go here. So I was going to ask mm. you about your childhood, but actually we've gone beyond that into the ancestry. And I'm sure that in your line of work, in your social impact work, that there's, you must have heard of the concept of seven generations back and seven generations forward. So these things are uh, very interesting to me that the things we do today, I think there's, there's other, there's other ver versions of this, which is if you plant a tree today, knowing that mm. you will never see it in its full fruition, then you're truly, you know, working for the planet or fill in the blank, your, your ancestry. So um, it, it, it's, it's very interesting to me to frame everything through the lens of seven generations back and seven generations forward, which is, uh, I understand, an, uh, an indigenous kind of concept. Mm. And I know that the traditions of Japan also have this inherent in them, which is, for example, a temple, you have to plan a thousand years ahead because the the tree that that will will support the pagoda or the central needs a thousand years to mm -hmm. Wow. I just and these concepts are so interesting so the reason I'm saying this is I've just created you can't see it here but a little altar I've never been like this at all of course the Japanese uh, always have a butsudan in the house which honors the ancestors um, but I've just put a couple of photographs of my gra my grandmas on there specifically my grandmas and just as part of this learning that I'm doing at the moment about like indigenous cultures and the effects of colonialism and so on so these concepts are really interesting to me. So I didn't know this <laughs> about you, but you've just invited <laughs> this into our conversation. So tell yeah. me more about this. Tell me more about this ancestral connection. So it was just, a, it was a brief conversation, but I've always been interested in this. And this also came about after a talk I read by Sir Ken Robinson, who I actually mentioned, or I, I want to talk about later, but he talks about how it's a, absolute miracle that each of us are alive yeah the amount of connections that had to have happened thousands of years ago with your great 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 grandma meeting your great 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 grandpa and then when you think about all the chance chance meetings that might not have happened but did 
and that ended in the unique expression of this human being is so powerful. And I've always been interested in where we came from because yeah. we're in a third country, like as immigrants, you know, you're not, you're not surrounded by that. So my grandmother always sent us birthday cards with a $20 bill and she, mm. she has like, you know, hundreds of grandchildren. So it always struck me as like, wow, she's, she's a very diligent person to remember all of our birthdays. And then um, through asking stories, so rather than just asking names and dates of birth, which give you a lineage, right? Like a, a record. When you ask stories, you get insights into these people's characters. So I found out that my great grandfather didn't like his first name, Walter. So he changed it to James. Mm -hmm. I have French in me and uh, my grandfather, great grandfather, changed the spelling from Jordan, which is J-O-U-R-D-A-N, to Jordan, which is more American. So you would not have known that, right? But through asking these questions, I found out like when my grandmother first moved from Louisville, Kentucky to Texas, first thing she did was buy a pair of Levi jeans. <laughs> my aunts are like, and you look so good in those jeans. And you see, you see this humor going back and forth. And for me, it's just really lovely. So my ancestry goes all the way back to Spain on my father's side, um, specifically the area of Basque, and they came over uh, to South America. And then on my mother's side, it's French, German, English, Irish. Yeah. Everyone else. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. So I will be looking into this more. Interesting. So you're going to start collecting the stories. Like story collection is so useful, mm. so amazing. Um, my dad actually made a book for us with all the family photos he could find. He was going all over England, collecting stories and photographs from people, like knocking on the doors of farms and stuff and going, hello, I'm your blah, 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 cousin X removed. Tell me about Auntie Peggy or whatever. And right. so I've got this incredible book that he made there with all the family lineage stuff in as far back as he could possibly go. That's really but my grandma really started telling stories when she was dying as well. Like, you know, she, she revealed to us that her mother hadn't actually died uh, when she was two, that she actually had just gone when oh. she was born. You know, so it's like, oh, that, that, that like rejigs your, you know, rejigs your whole like, what? <laughs> so interesting. It's like, um, yeah, for me, know, the, so those, the really yeah. interesting part is, especially in my line of work and with what I did with Tohoku and the recovery, yeah. I, I know in my book, especially I talk a lot about connections. Yes, yes. I think when you look into your ancestry, that's essentially what you're finding is the stories of connections. And then, of course, along with that come all these anecdotes that give you yeah. into their personal characters their humor or lack of humor. <laughs> So it's really, really interesting. What are you, what's, what's the most interesting discovery you've made so far, Ange? One of the most fascinating was to find out that on my Colombian side, my grandmother, we call her Abuela, she is the youngest of 24 children, two mothers, and one of her young, her earliest memories is when she was four was the funeral of her father. Wow. Yeah. How do you connect to that? Well, she told the story of how they kept his ashes in like a special uh, jar in one of the family rooms. And she was told not to go in there because the ghosts of, you know, the ancestors might be around. And she said when she was nine years old, 
she walked in there in the in at night and dared dared the ancestors to come forward and i'm meeting this woman i've only met her twice in my life and the second time she came all the way to tokyo when she was 92 and she's telling us this story and i'm just sitting there going like my god abuela you are a gutsy woman <laughs> And I remember when I met her at 15 as well, like the way she danced with everyone. I'm pretty sure she's much older, but she took a shot of Aguardiente and started dancing. She was very much this, this, this amazing, powerful character. However, because she grew up in the times that she did, the 50s, the 40s, you didn't see that side of women. Mm. And so I talk about this later um, uh, around my own relationship with my mother and how I didn't get to see this side of her until much later as well. Mm. One thing I think that's very interesting about women connections uh, is that oftentimes you don't really find these connections until you're also <laughs> an adult and not like a young adult, like, you know, I'm 30. No. So you find these stories out later and then it's brilliant to see. I see a lot of elderly women really tight, like, you know, with their daughters and their sisters. And, and I think that's something to really look forward to. Yeah, I think you've hit on something there, Ange, which is maybe we start to relate much more easily to the women in our lineage once we are the age we remember them. Do you know what That's I mean? Interesting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, like, you look in the mirror one day and you see yourself. You see you. you you're like, oh wow, I really look like my mom, and then all my grandma, and you think, oh wow, they were like, like I don't know what to say about that, but that's what I noted. And yeah. I think also it's because having been through a good few years, like decades of your own life, yeah. you start to connect with the word journey maybe, and you realize, oh, it's, it's far more fluid and evolving than you thought. And then you realize, oh, it's like that for them as well. <laughs> they weren't just these like, you know, photos or these statues that you put up on a pedestal as a child and, and it's just everything changes. And it's really- Yeah, it's like- like the uh, yeah, DNA, the DNA starts throbbing. Do you know how many cousins I have, Ange? How many? Zero. No cousins. Wow. I know. Unbelievable. Spoiled rotten <laughs> by the grandparents. <laughs> so that's, yeah, my Precious, daughter is so excited about being an only daughter for that very reason. But yeah, she's uh -huh. a lot of cousins. She'll get everything. Um, okay, so then let's move on then to your family of origin then, um, your, this incredible tribe you have there. Mm. Tell me about that then. So what's, you're one of 11 brothers and sisters and you were raised in the countryside in Japan. So tell us about your um, childhood and how that shaped you. So the very first memories I actually have are in Japan. Uh, although I was born in California, we moved here when I was about three or four. My youngest brother was just a baby. Mm -hmm. And five children, my parents moved to Japan. And we were waiting for our housing to be settled or to be confirmed. And so we spent, I don't know how long it was, but my earliest memories are of camping around like Mount Fuji area. And I would remember like eating on a park bench. We would be having like granola out of paper cups and my mom would be teaching us to read and we would just then go running off into the mountains. <laughs> so I have a lot of uh, fun and really fond memories of adventuring, riverside camping, 
uh, my dad's really into outdoors and he got that from his father fishing and so now what really brings us together as a family even though my siblings and I are scattered across three different continents is the outdoors so I'm going up tomorrow to my parents house and the conversation is fishing shall we build a pizza oven who's got the beef it's all about food and just kind of time spent together uh -huh. really shaped I think my values Hmm. Also, growing up in a foreign country, it was often difficult for me to integrate because I was homeschooled as a child. Mm -hmm. Although halfway through my adolescence, we moved to another rural uh, town, even more rural. And so some of my siblings went into Japanese school and they integrated and, and they have a very different life experience. Okay. Even though we're like one family unit, you know, there's the oldest is 21 years different from the youngest. And so they will have completely different childhood memories to share. Um, but just to get more specific, it was like, um, so mom was always having children. <laughs> eight, you kind of got into, you got, a, what's the word, drafted into the family cleanup schedule. So from eight years old, you had to choose one breakfast a week to cook, a dog, the dog to walk, or one sort of chore that you needed to partake in. I remember like I taught my youngest brother, I taught him to eat, use a spoon. I taught him to read. I taught him like just different aspects of education. I remember babysitting one of my younger sisters for two weeks while my parents went to visit their parents back in the States. And then my youngest sister, of course. So you have, you have such complex and unique relationships with every single sibling. Not to mention you look like some of them, but you have the temperament of another. So it's, it's really interesting and a lot of drama. <laughs> so and, I'm stuck. Yeah. No, so, but along with the drama comes a lot of like, the positive side of passion like we're really tight and it's a really loving family for for all the the fights there's a lot of love and that's that's really uh, I think that shaped my identity growing up because I didn't feel necessarily like a local mm. and of course I had a lot of like Hafu friends growing up and I distinctly remember I think I was nine years old I distinctly remember walking down the street with my girlfriends I think another one was a foreign and two of them were half Japanese and one was full Japanese. And we saw a white, I think it was a Mormon back then. You, the only other foreigners were Mormons or English teachers. And we were like, oh, gaijin da. And I remember going, wait a second. I think I'm gaijin. Like, boom. <laughs> wait a second. So just for the purpose of there's a couple of questions I have here. So the first one's just an informational question, and which is, um, can you just describe hafu for us, just in case there's anybody out there who doesn't know what that means? And also, like, how do, what does that mean in the context of living in Japan as well? Uh, what you just described there? Because it might sound a bit odd to somebody who's not used to hearing that language, whereas mm. I am. And this is really, really interesting because in Japan, hafu means half Japanese, half another race any other race, right? White, black, yellow, doesn't matter. But it's, it's got its own connotation. It's got its own, like you're a secondary citizen, depending on where you're living in Japan or mm -hmm. different. You're not fully Japanese. Therefore, we don't know exactly how to 
integrate you. We don't know how to accept you. Mm -hmm. Strange thing is, is that from being from the States, like I'm half because I'm half Colombian, half American. But then growing up in Japan, they don't recognize that because you're all just foreigners. You're all just, and the kanjis for that is outside. So you're literally someone from outside. Um, so I didn't grow up thinking I was Hafu. I just grew up thinking I was Colombian American. Sure. <laughs> it was one thing. Uh, but for half Japanese, half foreigners, they have a very different experience when it comes to integrating and being accepted in Japan. Yeah. And that will have a lot to do with their phenotype, like how they, how they look and how they, whether they have a preference for Japanese or the other language in the household. And is that Absolutely. how can you have some kind of simpatico then that, that kind of all the, outsider people tend to kind of group together is that what your experience was this is true yeah because you seem to have more in common and i think for example for my parents gravitating to other immigrant parents or mm -hmm. or mixed racial like the wife was japanese or the husband was foreign vice versa there's a lot of both. Mm -hmm. um but i think also it was a bit more difficult for some of the hafus who maybe spoke English as their first language and also mm. themselves didn't quite fit into the Japanese local community, mm -hmm. look Japanese. So there's a lot of expectations on them from the, the neighbors, for example, to know the dance that is Japan. <laughs> I call it a dance because it's a very complex culture and it's like everybody knows these steps and they didn't learn them. They just, you know, it was imprinted upon them as they grew up. By the, by the culture and the activities and everything. And then as a foreigner, you might learn the language, but you never learn the steps of this dance. And so you're constantly like messing up. It's like if you've, you've been invited to this waltz and you're the only one that doesn't know when to spin on time. And then instead of going, oh, let's teach you, they just kind of go, oh, let's just move over here <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, yeah, because people don't know what they, what they don't know what you don't know and they don't know how to describe that sometimes interesting yeah um what do we call you hybrid yeah weird hybrid creature weird hybrid creature <laughs> which sounds awful Ange, but that was quite a liberating <laughs> moment for you wasn't it it really was i yeah. just feel bad about never fitting in and it was so stressful Every yeah. and even the fact that i'm i'm an young or I was a young mother and so friends my age had no children women who had children my age were 10 15 years older than me and so there was just like almost it felt like from every which way you look at me I just don't have a space that feels like I belong like there was no little box I could jump into no <laughs> like here I am and everyone goes oh yes we get you yeah so then the I hear you I hear you <laughs> quite a lovely it was very like it was just like oh okay fine I'll just be back I, I it's so interesting you say that because even just last night I was sitting around like we're always in multicultural situations right uh, that that's our whole lives and that's our that's our karma that's who we are I, I wouldn't change it for the world but I was sitting around a table with lots of lovely people last night and I was thinking I feel like these all got a memo on how to communicate and I didn't get the memo. 
and I'm kind of sitting there like that going oh. and then when the group gets a bit smaller then I can relax a bit because then it's like I'm not you know you're not like twitching around looking for the social cues and what what <laughs> where am I Does, do you do you relate to this absolutely absolutely like a lot uh well definitely myself but I feel like a lot of the foreign culture around for example just as an example in the corporate setting in a creative performing yeah. you know it's for every five bad ideas comes the great good idea but and I'm happy to be the first one to throw out all the bad ideas but oftentimes I'm that is not understood by my colleagues and so they just kind of look at me as like Hmm. And then it puts them on this sort of defensive communication thread where they're just like, yeah, but that won't work because of this and this won't work because of this. And I was like, okay, yeah, we're not, we're not, we didn't get the same memo of how to communicate on this. And, and that can be quite challenging. Mm, yeah. But let me tell you one more interesting story. About my child Go on. I found just, I don't know, it was a bit of a, as a very young child. So my mother, you know, she's had 11 children. Uh, but the first was quite complicated and it was a cesarean. And then the second, um, the eldest daughter, she had to be delivered by forceps. So also quite complicated. And then the third son was also a cesarean. And the doctors told my mother, you should not have any more children. Like it's, it's really, it's quite dangerous. And then I was her first natural birth. And she always used to tell, cause you know, we're all, as kids, we're all crowded around, like just tell us stories. And she would often talk about, you know, the different aspects of us as young children. Yeah. I just remember going, yes, I'm the first natural yeah, birth. I'll have that. I'll have that. Yeah. I'll have that. Yeah. And I'll then afterwards that. she went on to have, you know, eight more children. Um, so that's, so that brings me to my next question, which is where are you in the, in the, uh, in the, in the birth order? I'm number four. And how four. do you think you're number four? number four and how do you think and who are you so basically with 11 <laughs> kids it's basically like a classroom and you know having been in so many rooms I can pretty much walk into a room these days and scan it and know who's who you know uh, wow. like oh, that like yeah I mean that's you know I did I taught for about four years I was a teacher for four years it's not I don't think it's a superpower it's not like some kind of incredible intuition it's just when you've been in enough classrooms mm. you know like okay that's the popular person. That's the person who leads the atmosphere of the class. If that person's a really cool team player or somebody quite unusual, it's all good. But if that person's the bully, it, it's a different kind of classroom that you're in. And, you know, it's just like you can kind of scan the room. So in your 11, <laughs> 11 person family, you were number four, the first, yeah. natural, the first natural birth. And you were, who are you in this family? So I think I am a bit of a, the peacemaker. Uh-huh. Young child, for example, I intuitively, maybe it was because I was very curious about people that I knew like how to talk to my father, for example, if we wanted to get something and <laughs> to say, whereas my older sister would just like, butt head on always, always she had to be the same, like a aggressive way she didn't know any other sort of persona to put on and for me I just was like well Paula that clearly doesn't work so they would always be like and you go ask dad and I would you know be the messenger kind of but then I think because of that 
role, I also became uh, a bit of a follower. Mm -hmm. So I idolized my the brother right above me. Like he, him and I were really close, and he played a big part in my becoming, I think, um, a strong woman. Like I never, ever felt less of a person because I was a girl. Same. I, you know, I have an older brother and a younger brother, so I'm kind of locked between the brothers. And I was very adventurous, just like them. Surprise, surprise. And they never once said, oh, Angie, don't, don't do that. They always just turned around and were like, can you do it? Are you going to do it? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to jump too. So and because we were very adventurous, like always running off to parks, building forts, you know, climbing things. Uh, I think as a young child, that gave me a sense of, well, I can be just like you. Mm -hmm. Then the other important lesson I learned actually from that funny story of my mom, you know, being told not to have any more children and then me being born was that, okay, so just because people tell you to do something clearly does not make them right. And I remember that was a small sort of lesson that, that imprinted on my brain, which later on in years, I think I've, I've really come to find value and foundation in. That's so interesting, Ange. I, I, that a piece of your puzzle just fell into place for me there as well, because like, you're so bold. And maybe because you were homeschooled as well, then you didn't get socialized as well quite as, quite as much. And also because you're an outsider, and one thing that's great about being a foreigner in Japan is that um, you get a lot of leeway, right? You get a lot mm. of kind of, you get quite a lot of breadth in terms of cultural faux pas and mishaps. It doesn't matter how long you've been here. You know, you, people still see you as, the, as a tourist. It is what it is. You know, yes. I'm, not weep, I'm not weeping in the corner about that anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love it. And how interesting that you ended up working at Adidas who one of their catchphrases was impossible is nothing. Nothing, yeah. Right? What's even more interesting is Adidas was like my childhood favorite brand. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. I, um, I remember when some of the girls in my class who were quite wealthy and snobby and they came back with their fancy Nike trainers and I was always, and my feet are kind of large for a girl. And it was always a point of like, I was so embarrassed about it. But then my brothers and I, like we would get the Adidas uh, discounts <laughs> store from the thrift shop, etc. And I was like, yeah, this one's way more cool. Adidas is more edgy. I'm going to be this, I'm going to wear this brand. And so um, I'm really, really happy to be now supporting their efforts yeah. in what is my sort of like dream career. Right, right. Awesome. So um, what, what, what else do we need to know about your childhood? I mean, it's fast. I could go on and on. What, what brought you to Japan as a family? My parents are massively adventurous people. That's honestly all I can come up with. Yeah. They, they, like when my mom turned 60, she bought a motorbike. And now they go off touring. And so going back to um, what I said about how I honestly, as a young child, I did not relate to my mother at all. I felt a disconnect and I felt a little bit even resentful that I didn't want to be a mother, first of all. <laughs> like I, I didn't want, I didn't have a lot of maternal instincts. I was a bit masculine and like, oh yeah, I'm going to travel and I'm going to see the world. And I have all these ideas. 
And I was like, you know, mom, what were you doing? You were just following dad around, having babies. And, and then years later, a conversation with my mom, I suddenly was like, wait a second. The only reason you would have done that is if you yourself wanted to travel around the world and have a lot of babies. And there must have been an alignment there. And it, it just, yeah, it occurred to me that she's quite an adventurous, very, very strong woman. What happened when you had that epiphany? I think I just was able to connect with her and have fun with her and, and celebrate just her as Judy. And, and that's been so wonderful. And then I started noticing all these other amazing things about her. Like, I don't remember her ever being sick. Ever. Like, she's just the strongest woman I, I, I know. Yeah, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? To be sick with 11 kids in your yeah, I, I would Mind you, you said you all look after each other as well, which is, a, is also a great skill to acquire, I think, young, late, early on. That kind mm. of taking care of each other thing. I think it must be quite humbling in a way. Because, you know, you're not the center of the, the world for the, those parents. Yeah, I, I felt often not neglected, but just sort of, there wasn't much attention. And because I was quite a self-capable girl, like I mentioned, like I was the peacemaker and I, I was just got on. I was not very finicky about what was happening. And later I came to understand why, and, and I now really treasure this value. But as a young child, I felt like, only the naughty children got the attention like so and I was just one of those just get on with it okay whatever let's all just go and so when I turned seven my mom took time out just to take me down to the 7-eleven because back then the 7-elevens would have like the full Baskin Robbins style ice cream scoopers so you could get like a proper like 31 flavor at a 7-eleven and we had a lovely time, like one hour. She just took me for a walk. So I have these small memories. Um, I remember riding the Domansuka, which was the mm -hmm. first trains in Japan. Like first class, yeah. Me to read. Uh, he bought me an orange juice. Like all these strange, just tiny, like colorful, like scenes in color. Uh, but then as they continued to have children, <laughs> kind of, you felt like the lost middle child. But often I did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love what you said there, that once you had that epiphany about your mum, you were able to connect and have fun and celebrate Judy for Judy. Have you been able to do that for yourself? Very good question. I think, yes. People pay me for this. Yes, <laughs> my goodness. Uh, but it has been quite recent, I'm yeah. not going to lie. But now I love myself. I know, and, and I was so thrilled to see you last, uh, last week delivering a, uh, a something that we'll talk about later, a, an online seminar for, for a group called Make March Matter, which uh, was just so fantastic. And it was, it was such a great moment for, for me as, as one of your peers to, to watch this strong, steady voice, because that's what I, unapologetic, you said something about, you said like you were really proud of yourself at one point, and I was like punching the air, so happy that you didn't mitigate it or put it down <laughs> or any of that stuff. I was just like, yes, you know, I was so happy. Um, it just, it made me so happy. I can't even tell you. 
Um, so let's um, let's move on further into your story then. So you said you didn't mm. want to have children, you didn't feel any maternal instincts, and then... What's the first thing I do as a young adult? Bam! Um, get pregnant. Yeah, so I... <laughs> was um so as you mentioned like I was homeschooled right so I finished yeah. high school around 17 actually so quite early and then yeah. I decided to do some traveling and I went to India and I just uh one thing that really excited me about India and uh, when we were talking about boxes earlier mm -hmm. there were no boxes to fit in because in developing countries like there are still so many open gray and a lot of these are ugly spaces but mm. For me, having only known developed country and Japan, you know, clean and precise and like efficient and everybody knows what to do. I was just like, what is this glorious place where if I wanted to go from A to B, first of all, the buses probably wouldn't be on time. But second of all, I could just go have a conversation with somebody, yep. pay them, get there. I just felt like, my God, I could just live however I wanted and get things done. And it was also another sort of like mind boggling moment for me. Uh, and I had a lot of, of valuable experiences there, which I later use in my, uh, my career in social impact. Uh, but I came back and my first real relationship led to me being pregnant at 19. So there I was, and I was devastated. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. And I've had these conversations with my daughter already. And that's why like, I feel I'm, I'm happy to share this, but I just was, I felt like I was just about to start my life. And now I have to start it for another person. Not for me. Like, yeah, it was, it was really emotionally devastating. And I just cried and cried. I couldn't even tell my dad. I was so embarrassed. And my father was horrified, called me irresponsible. And yeah, my sister had to tell him for me. And I was just like, I couldn't look him in the eyes. I was just crying. But I, you know, the like my parents were religious and my boyfriend at the time was also religious. So I just knew an abortion was not on the table. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that I wanted one, but I know that the fact that I didn't have a choice really left me feeling hopeless like now i have to do something that i don't even get a choice in and i blocked it out so i just i had three different jobs at the time and i just worked and worked until one day i felt the baby move and you feel like these you feels like what what are, are like butterflies mm -hmm. and oh, that's weird um but um I, you know, honestly, I, in, in hindsight, I feel a bit sad because I should have enjoyed it more. It is a, such an amazing experience. And then giving birth was like, holy fuck, what is going on? I did not tell this body to do this. And so the birth experience was also like less traumatic, more fascinating. I was just going, oh my God. And it was horrendously painful. I am not going to lie. Uh, but then this thing was born and I was just like, okay, let's get on with it. Took me two weeks to give her a name. You read my mind. How did you choose her name? You know, I, I didn't. What's her name? Her name is Antonia. 
What does it mean? Ortiz. Antonia means precious in Latin. Mm. Oh, no, sorry, priceless. It means priceless in Latin. And, mm. and, you know, I'd gone through thousands and thousands of names and we were coming up on the two-week deadline in Japan where you have to name them. And my father printed out, like a, yeah, I think it was a thousand baby names and I was flipping through it and suddenly I saw Antonia. It was the first time I'd seen Antonia in a baby book name and I was like, aha, that's it. I just knew. And do you have any brothers called Anthony? Nope. Do you have any ancestors with the name? Not that I know of. Not that you know of. No. But she, I always felt like she was just quite a unique thing. <laughs> it's a strong name, Antonia, I think. It is, right? It's a really, like, it's got power behind it. And she is that way. She was from just day one, she knew what she wanted to do, when she wanted to do it. And I struggled so hard just to keep up. You know, she started walking at eight and a half months. She, I was looking at her baby, which is very, very early. And I was looking at her baby book the other day. And one of the funny things that we wrote about her when she was four was that she would get in trouble in preschool because the teachers would tell her to write her alphabets the way we all recognize alphabets. And she, her response was, I want to write them the way I want to write them. <laughs> she, it was, she was just always that way. And so um, for me, being quite an easygoing person, mm -hmm. like a lot of, like I had to read and figure out and fail over and over to try and, you know, what is the role of a mother? How do I teach her certain things without smothering her you know without without taking away that unique like fire and and energy that makes her her even though it's really difficult for our relationship I always felt that you know well if you're gonna have a kid you should have a long-term strategy of what is your end goal you know a lot of people go oh I want a baby and I'm like well they're only babies for you know less than a year your job is to raise them from fetus to adult what's your strategy to do that um, so I think my kind of having gone through the emotional, and I say trauma because it was traumatic to find out at 19 that I was pregnant and that my entire life that I was looking at was now completely gone. Well, this is what I have to do now. So I'm, I'm going to do it. And I suppose there was no blueprint either because the way that your parents had parented was going to be vastly different from the way that you were going to enter parenting. Because you've been a solo parent for a long time now. That's always. right. Always. Almost always, yeah. We lived, uh, so I did get engaged and we tried uh, for about eight, 11 months. Yeah. Um, but I was still having to take on part-time work during that time and, and mm -hmm you know, the relationship didn't work out and I moved back to my parents and got another job. And so it's just always been her and I basically, but it does take a village to raise a child. And I was very close to my older brother's family and we definitely were the unabashedly unapologetic third wheel in the family. We were always tagging along. Uh, I also was aware that girls need father figures. It's, I feel like it's very important, but it doesn't need to be your biological father. You need 
a role model. It could be a grandfather, it could be an uncle, it could even be a neighbor. You just need to have a relationship and that connection, I think. And of course, I learned what I'm speaking about now. I learned this in hindsight. So this was not my 20s motherhood experience. <laughs> this was like after the fact, after I started learning all these different things, I tried to um, obviously try to always get better, right? Yeah, I mean, but you are a lifelong learner. And I think that's what you say. Obviously, it's not that obvious and not everybody does that. And not everybody is a reflective mm. learner in that way or a reflective learner in that way at all. So I, I, I'd, I'd really enjoy you taking ownership of that as something that's uniquely you to look back. Because the way you just told that story, it's as if this was unfolding in your 20s. Uh-uh, this is unfolding in the last X years since you've yeah, you know, yeah. had a bit more headspace. Because once your kids become less dependent, tell me where I'm wrong, I noticed that maybe about eight years old or maybe 10, you're, you, you are able to kind of re-embody your adulthood in a different way. Depends, case by case. No, absolutely. These phases happen, right? Like, so I remember <clears throat> after she was born, clearly physically there's so much to do right yeah but yeah, yeah like keep a baby alive and then around like two three i remember having a conversation with my sister-in-law going and like i was like you know what i feel like i'm babysitting now like what am i supposed to do because my sister-in-law was like reading books to her son and flashcards and i was like honestly I, I mean like i know this makes me sound like a horrible mom but i don't find that fun like i'm not waking up in the morning like flashcards on the potty with my kid <laughs> and I felt so guilty about it for so long. And I, after a while, I knew it was not making me a better parent. I knew the guilt was actually, if anything, making me a worse parent, but I couldn't break out of it. And also I had some, a lot of shaming from certain people who were, I was really close to, and that deeply affected my sense of self-esteem and my uh, and then also the fact that I knew in the back of my head, like no one else knew this, right? In the back of my head, I knew that deep down, I didn't want to get pregnant. And that guilt followed me for about a decade and a half. Wow. And how did, so how did you get, how did you get to the point where you were able to tell the truth about that to yourself and then move beyond it? Uh, yeah, so that, kind of change in my whole mindset happened in my early 30s through a through coming through working through a completely different sort of challenge in my life <clears throat> um i identified around i think i was 30 just 30 when i identified that i had an eating disorder okay yeah and it was through the growth of that that I, I was able to sort of rethink everything in my life. And, and alongside that, losing the, the guilt around being a parent was something I was able to overcome. Beautiful. And, and so through that, you did therapy, is that right? Yes, yes. Okay. So that, so actually, <clears throat> I don't know if many other people relate to this, but when I was like 16, 17, obviously I'm Colombian by ethnic background, which equals certain physical attributes <laughs> and American, right? And a lot of my Japanese friends are, are very different physique wise. And I, of course, grew up comparing to them and uh, didn't 
feel happy. I didn't like my body. I didn't like the way I looked. I didn't like the way my mind worked because I was always asking questions and I was, I just really hated myself when I was 17. And, but, time, you know, a lot of girls were doing the whole, like, Oh, just throw up afterwards. It's fine. You'll look, you know, so, you know, that had happened a couple times and often it became an incredible pattern, but I still didn't think I had a problem. You know, it was just something we did once in a while. All girls do it. Right. And then, um, starting the charity in Tohoku, it, it kind of like, it went away. And I was like, yeah, it's because now I have purpose and I'm excited for the first time in my life. But then to my horror and shock, it came back. And I was like, what? No, this, what? This is not supposed to happen. Why, why is this happening again? And I got really, well, of course I was devastated again. And I was like, okay, one day I looked online and I suddenly saw that millions of other women have this problem. And I just burst into tears and I started crying and crying. And then I remember I told my best friend, I was like, I think I have a problem, you know? And she was just like, yeah, Ange, it's okay. Um, I sometimes, you know, anyway, we, we're best friends. And so that, like that big hug she gave me kind of gave me the courage to then go explore. And of course, again, as I said, okay, once I know something to be true, I have to follow it. So, and I was like, there's no way I can exist with this. And also my daughter was nine at this time. And I was scared that she would overhear me or that she would mm. want it. And I would never wish an eating disorder on my worst enemy. It is the most horrendous mental and emotional stress that you could imagine. And so I decided to get help. And I went to mm -hmm. like eating anonymous 12 step things and it, they were all there doing their best, but they were coping. No, not one of them could tell me that they had overcome it. And I was like, no, I cannot live with this. I have to find a way to not have. This. So long story short, I eventually did find he was a diet coach and he helped people lose weight by understanding that there's some emotional connection probably in your childhood or in your past that has created an emotional connection between you and what you do when you are binging and purging there's many different types of eating disorder and i had bulimia right and so he put me through exercises of self analysis we did what they call mindfulness journaling where with, and he helped me go, he's like, and you cannot do this if you're shaming yourself every single second you're writing this. So I had to actually practice observing my behavior without shame and letting it happen. And, and in total, it took about three years, but eventually what I was able to do was identify the core trauma, address it, not to the people that were involved in that trauma. Like I didn't even need to go and talk to those persons i just needed to have a space to say that and to let that um part of myself be heard and when i was a young mom struggling financially emotionally through all of this i 
my coping mechanism was to sort of let the very tough side of my personality become my um, obvious personality. So the way I saw myself, um, the way I approached problems was very much, oh, fuck it, just do it. Just, so it was very like old school. It's like, like men from the 1940s and 50s, like just repress your emotions and get on with it. Uh, but because of that, uh, you know, there was obviously a side of me that was not being heard, that was not in balance, that was not um, there. And the course of my therapy with um, this gentleman helped me realize that there was a, a very vulnerable and delicate and girly side of me that I had never allowed to be expressed. And luckily, so now I'm so grateful for this eating disorder because you know, I approached my parenting in that way too. I was with Tony very like tough and rough and like, well, who cares that, you know, you're struggling because you know, maybe she was sad about her father not being there. You know, we have, that's a whole other story, but I didn't allow her to be sad to, to, to address those emotions. And so through a course of many, many conversations and time and just more time and learning to be okay with the mistakes and the vulnerabilities and all the things that my 17 year old self hated about me i came out of that like and i remember thinking it was like going into a pool or a lake and this side of the lake was filled with that thick disgusting algae you know like mm. disgusting you would never go but on the other side was like bright blue clear waters and it it felt like i had to like wade through all this and it was like tears and just oh my god i cannot express how overwhelming and disgusting it was but then one day you kind of wake up and there's like this oh, oh, oh this water's clean oh my god i'm breathing i'm breathing for the first time without this emotional weight on my shoulders. And then you started, you start swimming faster and faster. And then before you know it, you're on this other side of like, whoa, this is what it feels like to like enjoy these arms, <laughs> these, this face, this, this, this body, this, this, this life that I have. And then I just, it looked at everything so differently. And from that mindset, I just continued to, of course, fail forward, but it, it, I don't know, it was definitely like dark and like black and white, um, a journey that once yeah. the other side, I look back and I could see kind of fuzzy in the horizon, all that gunk I was talking about and just going like, ha! <laughs> in your face gunk! <laughs> in your face! I yeah. did it! That's absolutely amazing story and had so much emotion rise then like I had so much emotion rise when you said that you saw all these the first one like I had goosebumps all over my body when you said there were all these women there other girls there and you were like oh my god I'm not the only one and it seems so obvious but like mm. I, I just think to myself how where are those it reminds me of the vulnerability piece. You mentioned the word vulnerability there. I don't want to kind of hook too much into the, you know, the, the vulnerability thing, but um, Brené Brown says, you know, we need to get our secrets out where we can see them. Mm. And that like, she's the author of the power of vulnerability. And I think you've 
beautifully describes that there it's like you have to kind of it's that you said it was there it was always on the on your back that that guilt or whatever it was but like when you get it out where you can see it and then you found this this great guy who did the um diet thing and and the therapist so then when you've got somebody who's like a trusted professional to work with that with you that's also just so useful too and then you're able to pass that on. And this is like you calling it fail, fail forward. I know this is one of your favorite, favorite concepts, but, and, and also this gratitude, gratitude for your disorder, for showing you this and the metaphor mm-hmm. of the algae and then the clear blue waters. And I think often when we're on the edge of that, we talk about edges a lot, but when you're on the edge of that, it could probably feel quite, people will often go back to the algae because it feels familiar. <laughs> We've probably talked about this quite a lot, but you kept moving forward. 12-step programs are, 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 the concept of 12-step programs as well runs through, it certainly runs through my work without me knowing, as a coach, without me always knowing explicitly that what I'm using is from 12-step programs. My coach talks about 12-step programs a lot, picking things out. What was the one we, oh yeah, handing things over to to a higher power. Now I'm Mm. I'm not a God person anymore, but like, just that handing something over to something else like just i don't know whatever like oh i saw a butterfly today okay hand over some something to that butterfly you know i feel like just release it into the universe energy that is around you or something yeah yeah amazing and then and here's the kicker sarah go on would i have had the strength to go through that had i not had a young child that i felt so emotionally responsible for to be a role model to mm-hmm. you know yeah. there were so many moments along the way uh where i looked at the fact that oh my god if i hadn't had this kid pushing me what might i have ended up as because there was so much I, I didn't come from such a positive place when I went into adulthood. Like I, I didn't like myself. I didn't have a healthy self image. And I, f- I, um, I felt also that I was not like suited to, I wanted to live in Tokyo and be like, yes, you know, somebody. But, uh, when I started out, obviously I started in education because that was a very practical choice yeah. given the fact that I was a single parent. And, you know, I remember some of the, the women who were clients of the school, you know, no, they didn't look me in the eye. I was a sub teacher or what, um, support teacher until they found out that I had a daughter the same age their kids were. And then suddenly it was like, oh my goodness, Miss Angela. Like I got this respect because I was a mother. And I remember thinking about that going like, how interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like my curiosity always helped me sort of analyze these things and go, huh, wow, what do you know? How interesting these female creatures are in their (laughs) bizarre ways. Yeah. But in the end, yeah, I I did start to grow and notice these moments where I had absolute appreciation for becoming a mother at, at a young age, even though it was emotionally such a Spartan race. Yeah, we're going to come to that as well. Um, and, you know, there are some schools of thought if we talk, go back to kind of ancestral li- lines. And this is just the school of thought. This is not as w- what I believe or anything, which would be that somehow she was sent to you to teach you this. 
right and why not you know that's one of the the paths that i'm quite happy to kind of mix in my super i definitely feel that now yeah you see feel it now you didn't feel it the day you had birth like she's or the ten, teach me in 10, ten years time <laughs> rescue me from my uh, um yeah. yeah from trauma and and another name that came up there in addition to Brené Brown was Gabor Maté and Gabor Maté does a lot of work around uh trauma and he he mm. believes that all addictions and some people would categorize uh uh eating disorders in in that category oh absolutely come from absolutely okay I I'm not I'm no expert in that I've done some rudimentary research just based on wanting to understand friends better but uh um so you know i hand that expertise over to you but uh, he he believes that all all, all addiction or, or any addictive behavior is based on uh, trauma and so that's also another you know interesting hypothesis too um so moving on so this is kind of i think this is about the time when i met you actually i think we probably met each other about nine years ago around the time of the earthquake i was then the president of uh, women's or networking or professional networking organization called few for empowering women in japan enter you and one of my uh, boards of directors lovely lady called hannah who now lives in texas actually um said to me there's a woman here and she runs this group called OGA for aid and you know most so many people say this to you I thought you were a yoga teacher <laughs> right I th when she said yes. it I was like I don't even know what she just said I think it's something to do with yoga and she said I think she would be a great partner strategic partner for the organization um as one of the charity uh, partners or social uh, yeah so I then got to know you at that time just as you were kind of breaking onto the scene and as you just described it becoming somebody in Tokyo which mm. you really super did so what what happens next and then of course you become a Spartan so there's this Spartan race which if you don't know what the Spartan race is it's this like super intense obstacle course is that what you would call it yeah obstacle course racing yeah obstacle course racing which you are a professional in one of the elite athletes um so you started to learn how to love your body in in this cool water you described you looked at your arms you looked at your legs you're starting to do all you, you know this the, these epiphanies started happening when you were up in you thought i'm cured i'm healed and then you were like i'm not and then you then you got really on your path so what's happened in the last eight years so the charity was started and that's kind of connected to the book. So maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. What happened was, I think it was 2013 because 2011, 2012, I was literally living in Kyohoku, right? But yeah. I looked around, uh, you know, as things started to calm just a bit, like we moved out of the chaotic emergency traumatic phase and it was about, okay, what are these more long-term sustainable programs? I realized I had no idea what I was doing. And I looked around at my circle of friends and family and realized I had no one in those circles that I could talk to. I could talk to them, but it would be a very negative conversation because they would be asking me like, what do you think you're doing? You're not qualified. Don't do it. It's taking a risk. So I decided I needed to go and find other people. And that led me to few. I don't even remember Hannah's email, but we met for coffee. She took me to a few event and it was 
the very one of the very rare times that few would have a male guest speaker. And it was Matthew Dons. And he was talking about startup marketing as a small business. And so not only did, because we have the networking time, not only did I just walk into this room and go like, oh my goodness, these are women who, if not more advanced than me, are at least at my level, striving, trying, you know, they are unapologetic unapologetically just being them and I just felt an affinity and then Matthew's uh, content was about how to run a small business and I remember clear good clever marketing on Matthew's part he's like I can only take three students and I was like yep yep this is me I need this and what was interesting was you know I grew up always quite poor or thinking I was poor that I could never invest in something like this. And even at that moment, I mean, I was getting a small stipend, but there was just something so compelling about finding the right step. If I could get that right idea, I could then, you know, multiply that. The mm -hmm. on that would be huge. And I just remember without hesitation, raising my hand. And then that started me studying marketing, becoming part of the few community. And again, just surrounding yourself with people who are mentors and mentees. That also changed my life completely because I suddenly started to find support and ideas right and left. And being able to, to feel like you're in a community, your tribe, you know, that strength be, was just a life changer, really. Yeah. You know what, and you, you, I just made a comment on one of your Facebook calls to action, which was when somebody tells me what they're doing, I believe them, mm. right? And the, it sounds to me like that's what you got there. And, and I want to make the clear distinction. I did this on your comments as well. I don't believe in them. That's their business, right? That's their yes. business. Yeah. I just believe them. Like, so if you say to me, yeah, so um, we're moving into the next phase of disaster relief. And I think that growing onions uh, in... Um, in Tohoku is going to be the way to go to help to create some kind of sustainable thing forward. Yeah. Okay. In my mind, that's done. I'm not even like, I'm seeing the onions and stuff like that. Whether you believe in yourself or not, that's your business. <laughs> but so what something else that really was a profound moment was we would have these marketing classes and afterwards we would go for tea or coffee. And I always, even as a young child, and I think it's because my, like role models were always these like adventurous women, you know, who did their own thing. I wanted, I wanted to be and do something because I felt I could or I should be able to if I wanted to. Like, I felt like, isn't that something we should all be able to do? But I never had the guts to ever actually think I could. And I would never say this out loud. And then one day I was leaving the marketing class and I overheard Matthew behind my back telling someone, that woman, she's going to go places. And I was like, oh, do you think so too? <laughs> and so sometimes, you know, you, you do need someone else to tell you, you've got this, you know, that, that whole grit MBA thing. Someone else saying like, Ange, what you're doing right now, this is something people spend six, eight years studying, just keep doing it. And, and that encouragement, that, that, um, that support, I don't, I think we all need it at certain times. And that was one of the moments that was just like needle mover. I was like, well, if you think so, fine. That gives me the, the courage to, to, to say it out loud.
and just say, yeah, that's what I want. Even Love before it. it happens. Yeah, those, those like overhearing or when somebody introduces you, like take notes, you know, make people feel like rock stars. I, you know, mm. you know, I, I just, I really love that. And it's something that I love to, to, to do as well is just to really, yeah, I can remember somebody introducing me as the one to watch or something like that. But, and I was like, oh, like, and I believed them. I was like, oh, yeah. oh, but I, kind of, I didn't have that. I didn't have that sense at that time. They often say people live up to the expectations you give them. And so in a positive way, when you, when you believe in people, like what you say, it just gives people that space to believe in themselves too, because it isn't something, I mean, I think we're born with it, but then it's it, a bit of evidence, it right? gets, um, it basically gets like sort of squeezed out of us by the time we get, we get out of this, you know, confusing and complexing phase that is adolescence and all the well-meaning, but bitchy people who have our best interest in mind but do their best to crush it <laughs> unknowingly yeah and we've probably done it ourselves as well at some point you know oh yes so definitely. sorry to all the people out there who have ever been crushed by anything that we've said <laughs> we believe in you <laughs> but that was um, an interesting aspect of the culture of few was it was that there was no well, do you think that will really work? And what's your business plan for that? The conversation, oh, no, amazing. Wow. Like that kind of supportive community, I, I cannot recommend more to any, anyone else starting out. I do think you need a tribe. I, I do too. And I think like one of my keywords for any group that I form is elevate. Mm. So whether that's like a coaching group or it's a, um, the clothes swaps like i want everybody to feel like they have my full attention my best mates at the clothes swaps know not to take my time because i want to see the people who have come they get to see me outside and uh, so like i just want people to feel like i am so glad that they're there and i am like i genuinely am and like just i feel like rock stars because when you're trying on clothes you need to feel like rock stars don't you <laughs> Yes. Um, and it's deliberate, but it's also genuine, uh, but it's deliberate and there's a vigilance to it and there's a professional level to it. We've been talking about that as well, like really yeah. stepping up and being a professional. So fast forward then to now then, Ange, because so uh, just, just tell us how the concept. So let me rewind a little bit here. So you and I know this about disaster relief because we were at the, 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 well, I wouldn't say the hot, well, you were at the heart of it. Neither of us lost our homes or or, mm. or any of that stuff that the people in Tolhoku who you serve um, did. But we experienced that earthquake in a big way. And we also understand the phases of disaster relief. So there's immediate, can you just take us through those phases just very quickly? So you, you have the immediate relief. Yes. Immediate, and they call them first responders. And these are That's it, first responders. Your firemen, yeah. your... Um, police, your military, um, and very rarely you'll have like professional first responders who are citizens, but that is their profession, you know, mm -hmm. how to scale a house and rescue somebody or to clean rubble up without potentially finding bodies, just to be quite frank. Um, yeah, which happens. It always happens. 
And then about six months in, you move into long-term um, community rebuilding. But after, after about six months. After so about that's, six And that's months. things like shelters, food, sanitary wear, nappies, toilet paper, all that stuff, yeah? That's all emergency. That's emergency. That's an and emergency. then after six months. So you have, you have the, the teams that I just mentioned who are working on finding the, the lost bodies, um, building the lifelines again, so food and water and electricity and gas usually comes later, but those like immediate needs in order to communicate yeah. on the ground. And then you have uh, about two months later, and it's also part of emergency phase, but it's more like the, okay, clothes, band-aids, medicine, nappies, where are they living? Because most, most survivors will then be put into the, like, the big temporary homes, not temporary, the um, emergency shelters. And mm -hmm. emergency shelters, gymnasiums or tents or things, those will last from six, up to six months, potentially even longer, sometimes mm. six months. And this is, you know, us all camping out in a gymnasium. Um, very, very traumatic for the emotional side. And especially if then you're someone who suffers from some sort of sickness. Then we move into long-term community building and that alongside with that comes economic enhancement. So are people, can people get their, their, their own jobs back up and running so that they can start to rebuild themselves? Do they need handouts? Do they need subsidies? Do they need loans? Like what sort of support can you be um, helping? And that's definitely something that is mixed. Government, of course, is definitely involved in that, local prefectures. There's a lot of you know, social structures in place that are meant to support people on these aspects anyway, your welfare, et cetera. And then comes the community rebuilding long-term. And this will take decades. So that's where we moved into in 2015. Uh, how do you help communities who have been completely devastated, emotionally traumatized, economically, you know, disabled? Devastated, yeah. Um, who and how do you, do you need to rise? How should they connect and how do they rebuild? And what struck me profoundly in 2014, when we were just sort of the, the preliminary stages to community building was, I read a report about the Indonesian tsunami. They were hitting their 10th mark in 2014. And in the report, the biggest, most still needed area was emotional support. There were still cases of suicide, depression, alcoholism, and otherwise despondent and disconnected communities. And I know that this is a more difficult subject than just putting up power lines, but it is the one that we do not talk about long-term. Mm. In 2011, June, I had the very fortunate uh, moment to meet a gentleman who had worked 30 years for the American Federal Emergency Management Agency set up by President Carter. And, you know, I mean, these are the, like the most professional team in the world because it's the only country that really has that large a designated team to disaster management. And he was just nodding along, nodding along. And I was like, at one point I stopped and I was like, are you telling me that all these problems I'm explaining to you now, we have seen before? We've seen before, not only once, twice, three times, five times, 10 times, but we have not done anything as a society to change. 
like we have innovated every other you know aspect of our lives our phones our wallets our you know our computers but disaster management and community rebuilding has had no innovation and he sadly was like it it is this is the case so the way we're approaching it from a government perspective is the same way we were approaching kobe or you know haiti and i just thought that was it just blew my mind right <laughs> right what okay so what did that prompt you to do because your your company is your your company i could keep calling it a company is it a company is it an organization it's It's an organization it's a small business it's just registered as a non-profit so we don't have registered okay so it's called place to grow it's called place to grow what so we you transitioned over you, you got the japan market entry competition didn't you to uh um to help you with that project, is that right? Oh, the JMEC. Yes. Yes. To help you to transition true. your name over. Yeah. Exactly. To transit to transition the name over and also to identify a more sustainable model. Because obviously in the beginning we were just running off of donations and reports, right? As long as we were transparent and showing them what they were doing, um, everything was was running well. And that was my role was to identify the problems and then share it with people who wanted to support. So it could be point. But when we moved into community rebuilding long-term, I asked the local people, what do you need? And they said, our houses have been rebuilt or they're, they're, there's a schedule for it. <laughs> Electricity's back. And, but they were like, so please just don't leave our sides. Oh. And it blew my mind. Cause I was like, what, like really me? Okay, you're done now, bye. That feeling, they didn't want that. They wanted to feel exactly. like there was exactly. some- long that that this wasn't just the thing you so came again, in to like do that, to that be the saviors and then out and i was curious why is that so important to you <clears throat> and so that prompted me to start place to grow we decided to focus on children's workshops and larger programs like the santa soul train that would bring oh, people yes. together tell us more about <clears throat> that so this is a big <clears throat> christmas party that you throw right every yeah. year for hundreds and hundreds of kids yeah yeah and, and I love that smile and their families and you have these chocolate fountains and you have this like uh tele- te- television guy this like is it Stuart dancing and stewardo dancing, from NHK, singing. Yes. they all kind of know him from NHK so it's like thrilling for them like having a celeb there loads of people are involved and every year it's to me this is memory making yes and um just so you know those little moments you were talking about from your childhood on getting goosebumps now um where you were saying like we went and got like baskin robbins from the 7-eleven or you went you went on the romance car with your dad and had orange juice and stuff that's their version of this or one of their versions of this tell me where i'm wrong no you're absolutely right yeah the reason this started was because at the end of 2011 you know it was just the whole town was you could feel it it was depressed you know so which town huh this was in minami sandiku minami sandiku devastated yeah and i mean our community was minami sandiku and some of the neighboring towns like ishinomaki and kisunuma but we were based in minami sandiku and it was just so difficult like you know the everyday stressors were so tough and i related to that you know like I guess you've heard some of my background. I related to this idea of having to be a survivor, having to face a life where you 
you know, you don't know what's going to happen. How am I supposed to rebuild? Where am I going to get the emotional strength from that? And clearly it was through each other. And we saw this, but we also saw that many gaps were starting between people and people were starting to fight. So again, drawing on my own favorite family experiences growing up, which was the holidays, yeah. I decided to throw a Christmas party and everybody danced and sang and they had turkey for the first time. And, uh, and I thought that was wonderful. And then a year later, they approached me going, oh, Angela, we really, we want to do this again. And from 175 people from the first year, second year, 450 people showed up. And, and they, we charged, you know, not much, but everybody contributed a little bit to make it sustainable. And it just became the most heartwarming, brilliant environment I've ever been in. And not yeah. where people like coming to perform for them. And this is a really important aspect of humanitarian aid is that they need to also be given the opportunity to stand up and give back. You know, a lot of people don't get this. They think we just want to continue giving to them. No. They are kawaiso. They are, they are the victims. Kawaiso means? It means like we feel sorry for them. Yes. Right. They are the victims. But if you see them as victims, they see themselves as victims. And yeah. you and I probably both know if you choose to stay in a victim mentality, you will never overcome the challenges. So part of our role as outsiders is to provide spaces where we can't do everything so we have to ask them to fulfill step up stand up and let's do it together and so the girls like the young dance troops who perform the moms told me like they never get to perform in front of this many people so there's that orange juice moment right like i'm 15 and also it's that elevation moment as well it's like oh you have a dance troupe we believe you okay on yes. you go perform yes and then that makes them feel like their performance as well Incredible, Ange, incredible. And um, yeah, so um, let's, let's move into this then. So what you did was mm. you wrote this as a, as a kind of manual for your, for, your, for your people in your NPO place to yeah. grow. Yeah. To, so you could take on more of the kind of executive role and not be constantly in the weeds trying to help them to do things. And this book was published very quickly. You just did it very quickly. It took four days, eight weeks, 38 years, <laughs> as your uh, speech that you gave last week said. And this is like eight principles that will make you an effective leader in social impact. And it's, it's just, it's smashing. And what I love about it, and, and this is so in line with my, why we're here today talking is, it's storytelling in it's so it's it's in it, it gives you these things but it's also storytelling in action which not only lends it credibility but it also you know and we're talking about ancestry at the top of this call it that's the kind of ancestral way to pass on stories before everybody was literate a hundred years ago it was all verbal so you know this is a really fascinating read um, so why don't you take us through the, the eight principles? Just tell us what they are for starters. If you, if you don't know them off the top of your head, I can prompt you. I hope you've got your book there, Ange. I do. It's actually <laughs> it's propping up my microphone. Yay. Okay. But um, yes, no. So it starts, there's eight principles and then a takeaway. So as you mentioned, I wrote this specifically to help the, the, like the next generation of leaders in my organization become more autonomous, you know, be able to lead in their own right. 
but then also I realized that probably it could benefit anyone who wanted to work in humanitarian aid, social impact. As I mentioned, you know, my shock at finding out that there was so little innovation in this industry, I just feel like the time for massive disruptive innovation in humanitarian aid is coming. And so the, but the very first one is uh, you matter when you choose to. And the takeaway from that is that if you're gonna do something that will benefit you and, and others, please think mostly about how it's gonna benefit you because it's going to be the journey of that that will keep you going. So don't do it for the maybe immediate external validation. Don't do it because you'll get your face in the newspaper. Don't do it because people will thank you. Do it because there's a need, but you will become a different person through it. That's kind of my, my message through that. It's just, and if you love it, anything, it could be dance, it could be music, it could be fashion, but you're going to have to choose to matter to it because no one's going to go, here is a huge problem. Why don't you step up and solve it? Right? Love it. Love it, love it, love it. One of my great mentors who I'm learning from at the moment, Dr. Frantonia Pollens, um, she talks about this as well. So she's a committed anti-racist worker. Mm. And she, she says, don't do it for anybody else. Don't do it to save anybody. Do it for yourself because it's something that you need to do. And it just shifts the perspective so much. And it takes a lot of humility to do that, I think, mm. actually, because it's very easy to go... I'm so generous and giving. Like that's kind of the blueprint we receive. But yes, today, that's the stereotype. I'm do this for myself. Do you know what I mean? So I love it, and you're really on. You're on brand for the current kind of wave of um, learning and developing. All right, number two. <laughs> so number two is uh, it's all about the details, but I like to just say it's the devil is in the details, and this mm -hmm. was. There are um, so many things that I learned through doing that completely like went contrast to what I thought. But the takeaway of the, the stories in The Devil is in the Details and when you find out that, you know, without knowing those details, you might not be able to solve some of the problems. But the beauty is that if you know those details, that's where all the solutions are hidden, right? So yeah. the takeaway for this one is also that creating spaces for other people to choose empowerment might be one of the greatest gifts you could ever give another human. And I met, and I learned this because a lot of times in uh, definitely with corporate or with work business, you don't want to make mistakes, right? You want to do things perfectly because people want to see you as an expert or you want to be seen as an expert. But if you take that approach in humanitarian aid, you will perpetuate ongoing dependency. So you almost have to, on purpose, integrate mistakes into your, your implementation so that the receiving side of people can go, you know, I can do that better. And that gives them that, that, that step to go, to go in there. And then, um, as I mentioned, the other thing was that the details of the problem will show you how to make those spaces. And you can't do it. That has to be involved the people who are there. My favorite story in the book is in here, which is about when um, the, the U, uh, some US organization had donated lots of tins of chili. 
And so you distributed it and you were like, yeah, yeah. And somebody opened it and was like, is this dog food? And so when you say you're perpetuating something, it's like people who have already lost so much and so much dignity now think you're feeding them dog food. It's like a simple conversation or a simple kind of step back. And I'm sure the chili was delicious and it was a very kind, well-meaning thing. But that detail, you wouldn't know that. I wouldn't know that. That opened my eyes so much to so many things um, of just not assuming things. It's yes. such a good, it, and this is what I love about this book is all the, the, you know, the stories are so good. And there's photographs in here as well uh, on the ground level. And, yeah. and you know, there's, the, there's the, all these stories. Okay, so let's move on to the third principle. I normally don't like books with, with pictures in them, but I, there were so many aspects that I just could not explain in words. Well, there's a self-limiting belief <laughs> question. I don't like, I'm the kind of person who doesn't like books with pictures in. We'll work on that. I've had that to humble yourself for this one because it's really useful, actually. It's very useful. Yeah. Because it, yeah. it built the picture right. for people as well. Uh, so dry. Okay, third one. Third one is competition versus camaraderie. Okay, and the takeaway? The takeaway for this one was a common goal brings people together. So you are always going to have to be dealing with people at odds, right? And everyone's got their own opinion about things. Yeah. If, you're, if your goal can be bigger than any of them, people will just naturally come together. I think there's something hardwired in us. And so I urge you as leaders to use that rather than mm -hmm. all the little problems. And then another thing on, on the, the other takeaway was establish the commander's intent which is, it's actually a military term, but I found it so useful, which is the core reason, make sure that everyone on your team, and you can apply this across any organization, what is the core purpose for why you're there? So in, in our uh, organization, inspire and connect. So if we have a plan, a mission, everything goes to shit, the cars break down, this, that, or the other, at least I know when I engage that local person, my job is to inspire and connect with that person. And that gives you just... You know, you because the plans are always going to change and things are always going to bother you. But if you have the, uh, uh, if you establish the commander's intent, then I think you can empower a much more effective organization. Okay, so principle number four: why inclusion in support is vitally important. People more than wanting to be right or win, I believe they want to be heard. And so in this. Store, the stories I talk about here, the takeaway is that having differences is not the problem because contrast in, is here in life for us to grow and without variables, there's no opportunity for that. So real inclusion can be achieved when people feel heard. So when you can, because we had so many different peoples with different backgrounds and even neighbors that identify with different cultures and they would just want to fight because they're in the forest, right? But when we were able to say, honestly, unfortunately, those don't matter because we have this bigger goal up here, they can all go, oh, okay. And it was, it worked so smoothly. And so, and I think this one's actually really relevant for what's happening right now in the world and how leaders can maybe use that idea of inclusion, not as checking boxes for how many different colored people we have in our office or you know, how many types of women and men in the in-betweens that we have working together, but actually look at differences as so valuable, but people need to feel heard. 
not told yeah. your idea doesn't matter, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, what does my ego have to do with it? Number five. Take away, change the way you look at things and the things you look at change. And then the hardest one of all, don't let it get to you. Ah. Oh. That one is really tough. So hard. So, so hard. hard. Very, I mean, it's just like humility runs throughout this. Um, but and as you know, I, I believe through humility. This, what yeah. I learned through this was that you know, the not get letting it get to you. I think, especially those of us that kind of grow up with the old school sort of Christian ideas that turn the other cheek has a very, um, it's like a very a, a submissive feeling to it. But I learned that no, 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 no. When you don't let it get to you, you are being strategic about where you put your focus and energy. Yeah. Don't be distracted. That's what, yeah. yeah. Don't be distracted. But that blew my mind. I was like, oh my devoted. God. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Fail forward successfully. You've already mentioned this. This is, you're, you're always talking about this. Um, so you don't, people are afraid of failure because they are afraid of what, it, what other people think of them. Right. Mm -hmm. But fail small and fail often in the way you might work out, for example, get sore muscles. Then the, then, um, your, that become, you strengthen your, your operating system, basically, right. The mm -hmm. system muscles. Um, and then you are progressing steadily forward. Uh, don't, don't wait until you're going to have like a huge failure to where it's going to be, take months and months to recuperate. Recover, yeah. Just, just do them small. Yeah. Brilliant. Take care of yourself so you can take care of others. So important. I mean, self-care is a buzzword, but we have to look after ourselves. And again, this is another one that Dr. Frantonia Pollins talks about all the time. We have to self-care. We have to drink water. We have to hydrate. So I want people to talk about this side more, you know, and well, for me growing up, physical fitness was always associated with vanity and, or, wow. Okay. And you know, Oh, if you're either really, really sexy and that's why you're a fitness person or you're the person that tries for two weeks and then is always making jokes about why you can't keep up with it. Uh, but what I discovered going through my eating disorder is that that physical fitness is paramount to good mental health as much as is as much as it is important to maintaining like you know an agile and mobile sustainable body to live in healthy it is so important for your mind and and that's why i put that in there because through my own experiences i realized you know physical fitness is also a massive antidote to depression wow and um, finally number eight people inspire people and you benefit from inspiring others just I, I love this i'm so much everything in here is about like looking at what's what's good for you and what's good for others as well and i i you know it's just such a great reminder to not to not be attached or addicted to the idea that you have to be endlessly generous in order to be valued mm. one way yeah. Another kind of that very kind of Christian Catholic ideal, certainly yeah. another ideal. Um, but I just love it. Go ahead. So, I mean, you, you just explained the takeaway right there, but I'll tell you a story about, I think maybe one of the first reasons I realized this was we were arriving back in Minami Sandiku 2011. This was March still. And we arrived wow. very late 
Uh, so we had to we had to go around the mountain. And when we arrived, the the staff from the hotel had waited up for us. And they were waiting up for us with a tray, each of you know, like a tray with rice and miso soup and some skimono. And this blew my mind because I was like, no, 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 we're coming in here to help you. How are you here all waiting? And smiles on their faces. And my Japanese colleague flipped the fuck out. He was like, no, this is wrong. We cannot eat this food. This is no, 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 no. And I was like, okay, first of all, look at their faces, how excited and happy they are to see us. This was not the same place that I, I walked into last week. No, and it's not his decision. They eat their food, and you know what? We're going to tell them this is the best goddamn rice we've ever tasted. And, and honestly, we were starving. So it was, it, but, but I stood there for a moment going like, okay, this is also not what I expected, but clearly something else is going on that's inspiring them. It's not the truck of futons and apple boxes that we're bringing, although they need that. It was the, it was that human connection. It was that we're there. And that just blew my mind. And, and then after that, I have hundreds of other stories where I realized, you know, it wasn't the 12,000 tons of supplies. It was the fact that Ange kept showing up and saying, are you okay? Here's some more water. You know, that, that reoccurring connection of caring about somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. It gave them the strength to keep going and gave them absolutely. And yeah. it blew my mind. Beautiful. I mean, it's interesting. We were just talking about this yesterday, of course, you know, for anybody who's living in Japan at that time, that earthquake was there's, there's before and there's after, you know, there was like, it, it adjusts you at a cellular level somehow, not just yeah. because the fear is so raw, like not the fear of like being left out or not being invited to an event or something like that, but the raw fear of being like, I'm going to die immediately. And then like aftershocks, Aftershocks are just more earthquakes, P.S. It's not like a it's another earthquake after another earthquake after another earthquake. Now, I was experiencing that in Tokyo. These people are experiencing it up there as well. So, but, so it often comes up in conversation is what I'm, mm. where I'm going with this. And last Absolutely. night it came up in conversation and we were talking about a fish called Sanma, which is a long silver fish. Yeah. It's very delicious and loved here. Lots of bones. And in 2012... Um, the people of Onogawa and um, Ishinomaki came down to Tokyo and in Hibiya Park, which is just near where the um, government buildings are, they held a big Sanma festival. And this wasn't to promote Tohoku food. It was to say thank you to Tokyo for the aid that they gave. And this is perfectly in line with what you're saying here. It's that sense of like, that that reciprocity thing comes in and it 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 it, it and that is that's their decision to make like it was just so humbling and so lovely yeah amazing so Ange, thank you um you can find this on amazon is that right yes just type and an e version as well. place and, to and grow sorry an audible version as well. oh no an e version as well right e version the audible book should be I'm working on it, so it should be available in a few months. Are you voicing that? I think so, yeah. Amazing. Okay, so um, let's, we're going to start to close out now, Ange. So um, why don't you tell us about your new venture then that's coming up? So Stratakist is the name of this new brand. That Stratakist. Yes. 
Mm -hmm. Play on the words strategy and techniques because I think I want to, no, I don't think, I want to share both with aspiring entrepreneurs. And it doesn't have to be in social impact, but I find that if you're going to have a business, you're going to impact society and environment anyway. So yeah. I want to share how you can leverage both those aspects, not only to sell more products or services, not only for your success, but also to then make, you know, have a positive impact on the environment and the society. Because I believe that when you look at these three things, you know, people, planet, profit equally, you have more success and finances or success or profit is an end. People, planet, profit. That's the, people, we call planet, that the triple bottom, triple bottom, triple line, bottom right? line. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, when you think of those as one, as one key thing that you need to focus on, um, you need to have in order to have a sustainable business, um, you know, finance or profit wealth, this is the outcome. It's not the goal in and of itself, right? So if you're, if you're doing your thing to the best of your ability, the quality, then money yeah. will come, you know, yeah. like it's not, you're not supposed to start the business and go, okay, we're just going to make money. You're, you're there to solve a problem. And it was, I read this great thing the other day. It was like, so if you want to be a millionaire, how are you going to positively impact 1 million people's lives? And I thought, you know, yeah. So I want, I, I do also want to flip the switch because, you know, a lot of people to date have been under the impression that if you want to do good in the world, you should not want to pursue wealth, financial wealth, I mean, you know. It's and the most damaging concept very, ever that keeps very, very, damaging. very generous, very sensitive, very loving people poor. And if you want to be financially wealthy, you need to be an asshole. Is, is these, nonsense. These, nonsense. These ideas that were perpetuated throughout these last yeah. decades of humanity. And I would really love to flip the switch on that. I would love to um, encourage and mentor startup. I think I have eight years, 38 years, sorry, eight weeks and three days of really sort of hard-won victories that would be my contribution. And so with Stratacist, I do workshops and masterminds for people who really want to get started up. And we'll start with the mindset of how do you, you know, love yourself? How do you believe in yourself? How do you know that, how do you get that confidence to say, you know, I'm not, please, could you buy my thing? But no, it's my responsibility to share this with the world because only I can. And then going back to what I mentioned, Sir Ken Robinson talking about um, how it is a miracle that each of us are alive. He says this amazing thing about how, you know, an entire gajillion different particles and little connections had to happen for the expression of every person. Yeah, like protein, protein, oops, DNA. So, so each person is unique. And I know yeah. it's a trendy thing that's been said, but if you really sit with that for a moment and think that I have a very unique and perspective upbringing experience in life, so only I am going to be the one to be able to say this, the way it's being said. And I want more people to, to, to discover that. Love it. Love it. And, and you know what? The reason why that's 
I think you just mentioned the word cliche or something like that. It's because it's true, but it doesn't set, it doesn't settle in until like, it's like previous people say it, like, you know, you have your own unique, you only you have the things that you can bring into the world. I think it's one of Marie Folio's uh, mm. things. It's like, yeah, actually. And then when you realize that it, it's very freeing because it frees you up to be humble enough to actually put your stuff out into the world, which is in horrifying isn't it it's very scary it's, it's terrifying and let's let's be perfectly honest about that angela you know you and i you know on the surface are those people who people may in tokyo or wherever who know us be like wow she's so strong do you know what i mean without knowing the backstory without knowing the conversations that we have without knowing the tears without knowing all that stuff and i don't think that i don't think that we should have to prove that in any ways i think we should be able to you know show up as fully formed people as we are and you can just make the assumption by the way that we are we have a nervous system we shit ourselves on the regular and you know <laughs> i'm sorry that's so disgusting but like you know what i mean like we we are like what you see here is the result of a lot of work in the background you can just assume that i don't have to feed that to you i don't have to show you how vulnerable i am you know, yes. you don't get to feast on that unless mm. I decide that. Um, I feel very strongly about this, as you can see. So uh, bravo to you um, for getting yeah. this out into the um. world. I was like, one minute we were talking about it and the next the book was there. And I was like, how did that happen? Amazing. <laughs> so I want to close out now, Angela, and say thank you very, very, very much. I love the book. Um, thank, you. thank you for giving me a little mention in here. That was so humbling, Absolutely. so delightful. <laughs> um, and I want to just what my my thing is for this is I I call if you're watching or listening bit to this, um, how are you going to impact a million people in the world? You don't have to touch each one of them because you know there's three people sitting behind. There's an exponential amount of things. But how? What's the thing that you're going to do to impact a million people? I love this idea and I'm thinking about that right now myself. Um, you've just reignited that spark inside of me. Um, but what, what would be your thing that you would love to leave people with, Ange? Well, I would like to not, not invite people, but the way I would hope to, I guess, touch a million people's lives is to say you don't need to walk on eggshells around who you are. Just step up and own it. Like once you can own your life, then there's this freedom that, that like there's all this stress, you know, and I definitely learned this through my eating disorder and, and I want to help people get to that point. Uh, but I'm not a coach, you know, so I'm not gonna approach this from a, a, a training period. I wanna do it from a more practical sense and then help them identify that, look, connect these dots for you. It's like, it's what I had to do, right? Mind map or like life mapping, go back, look behind and say, not in spite of what happened to you, because of that, look at these options. And I guess that's what I will put into Stratacist. And I hope through Stratacist and through these workshops, I can touch a million people's lives. Beautiful. Where can people find you, Angela? At www.stratacist.com gorgeous and where can we find this i've said it's on amazon you can find this on amazon you can also find this on the organization's workshop which is place to grow slash ngo.org mm -hmm. and, uh, and yeah. thank you and so i would 
highly encourage people to go and buy it, read it, digest it, post about it online. Also, um, hashtag place to grow, hashtag. There are journaling it. spaces for you as the reader to keep your own notes. So this should not be a pristine, clean book. It should be bent edges. It should be scratched up. It should be at the bottom of your backpack. Yay. That's what I hope. And I absolutely love it. There's so much in here and it's not just about disaster relief. It's about how to lead a life. And there are many ways to lead a life. Everybody has stories. I want to tell them, thank you so much for sharing your stories so generously today, Angie. I absolutely loved it. Learned so much. And I will see you soon. The next interview will be coming soon. So thank you, Angela. Thank you so much, Sarah. I had so much fun. Yes. Amazing. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers, if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not. But these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Faruya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Faruya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.